The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Well, if the market has a cold, then fintech or financial technology has the flu. Uh, every company from SoFi to PayPal, Square, um, you name it, Robinhood, which has been in the headlines this week, seems like it's been a disaster for all of them. Uh, I think that we've been long overdue on the show to have a deep discussion of what's going on in the financial technology world. And especially now, now that these companies that have enabled what was supposed to be a democratic revolution in the finance world, many of those dreams haven't come to fruition, at least yet. It's time for us to dig in and figure out what's going on. We couldn't have a better guest to do it with us today than Dan Dolev, who is the managing director and senior analyst at Mizuho. Uh, He is a great analyst. He's on CNBC all the time, covers companies like uh, Dan, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but Robinhood, Affirm, SoFi, Coinbase, you name it. Um, we're about to get into that and more. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm glad we solved all the tech issues and it's a big honor to be on your podcast. Well, it's great to have you here. And yes, tech issues, we get those every week. So the true uh, the hero behind the scenes is Nate Gwatney, who manages to turn these around quickly. So we usually thank Nate at the end, but the man is a saint. <laughs> I can tell you, your technology is better than the Square Analyst Day. Their oh, technology was awful. Okay. So you've, you've, you've well, already won on that. On that low bar to clear. So we're going to talk about financial technology. I think, you know, sometimes with these discussions, it's always a given. Okay, of course, there is an area called fintech. There's an area called biotech. Financial technology is interesting because we have like a pretty well-established banking system with um, you know, certain uh, safeguards for people. And most people don't, well, maybe I'm being, uh, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Most people don't seem to have problems with their banks. Um, generally, the bigger system they do, but the banks, I don't hear too many complaints about them. You can help me shoot down those, you know, that assertion if you'd like. So I just want to start with this very basic fundamental question, which is, Financial technology, why why does it exist? What is it trying to do? Is it trying to replace banks, disrupt certain things within banks? Um, why do we have a fintech industry and what's the opportunity? Look, this is like the, the an excellent question. And, and I would say there's um, different answers to that question, right? It, it, you know, thinking through what you're saying, I think, you know, the, the, the gospel here, you know, if you're really into this is basically there's a big group of people out there that are not well served by the banks, right? Like we are all like sort of, you know, we have great lives and, you know, um, you know, very cushy jobs and and we're all doing really well, but there's a lot of people, you know, in America, but also globally, like that are underbanked or unbanked. I think in America, there's like 40, 50, 60 million people who are either underbanked or unbanked, i.e. they're not Either they have a bank account, but that bank doesn't give them anything. It doesn't give them credit. It doesn't give them 
any services that, you know, like that they need. And the, the fintech industry sort of emerged out of the need of those people. This is kind of the grassroots mo- movement. It emerged out of the need of those people to actually have more access to, to, to the financial ecosystem. So initially it was these, you know, the Western unions of the world, et cetera, and the, the, the cash checked. And that morphed mm-hmm. into sort of more, comp- with technology, it morphed into more complicated and complex um, apps like the Cash App on the one hand, the Buy Now, Pay Later firm on the other hand, uh, and sort of all the, this neobank era of like the chimes, et cetera, of the world. So I think that's the, that's kind of what's, what, that was the need that created the fintech industry. Um, and, and I really think that, that that's kind of probably the biggest sort of driver, the biggest moat to the industry is like servicing the unbanked and underbanked. To your point, right? banks are doing fine. Most people don't need fintech. Mm. And so how does that, well, first of all, I would say that um, anything is an improvement over Western Union. If you've ever tried to send money <laughs> through Western Union, um, it is a disaster and anything is an improvement over there. That's why when I was in uh, El Salvador, and I know I like to talk about this a lot on, on the show, and I saw people, you know, adopting Bitcoin, it's now legal tender there. You know, I thought not, hey, this government should in, invest in these in, in Bitcoin, you know, through the treasury, but this actually might help, you know, above all remittances. So when you talk about the promise of fintech, um, that that definitely makes a lot of sense and it resonates that there's folks that are underserved by the banking system. I recant my opening statement. That being said, what is the opportunity then? Because if it's mostly going to un- to the unbanked folks, um, you know, we, we've we're just coming through a, a moment of sky high valuations for these fintech companies. Um, now they're on the other side of that. So how do you think about the opportunity in fintech? Um, if basically, you know, a lot of tech is, you know, let's disrupt what's in what's you know the current leader. But from my understanding, you know, listening to you, it's not let's let's disrupt the J.P. Morgan. It's you know, let's fill in the gaps that they're missing. And if that's the case, what's the opportunity? Because you look at some of the valuations of some of these companies um, and, you know, they're way higher than, than um, you would imagine if the opportunity is simply just to fill in the gaps of the mainstream banking system. Right. And, and I would say that the, what we're seeing right now, the dislocation in the market that we're seeing right now is a function of, I would say, at least two forces that are working together. One, as we all know, COVID is a round trip. Mm-hmm. Everything that went up went down. And fintech, particularly payments and fintech, is a leading indicator. So you're seeing basically payments and fintech peaking. I call this FIFO, first in, first out. Payment is has peaked um, fastest in, during, you know, d- before COVID. So i.e. in like the second quarter of 2020, uh, 2020, basically everyone was like piling into payments. It's had an amazing 12 month run. And then it was the first one to start kind of like the, the broken story started with, with multiples for the payments ecosystem. And now it's down. I think the bigger picture is it's almost like, you know, why is payments so bad right now? And the reason the answer is just, it's too good and everyone wants a piece of it. And I think that's what's happening. So if you think about like, if you kind of parse out the, um, so like, if you think about, say, let's think about PayPal, let me give you some specific examples, right? So Wait, but before we go in, I yes. mean, I, I just want to, again, like, let's, let's zoom out before we go into like why the mm-hmm. stock has, has fallen and, 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 you know, risen. 
Like if you think about a JP Morgan, their market cap is 340 billion. You know, when we look at like some of these other companies, uh, I had a bunch of them open earlier. Um, but you know, they, they were like, basically some of them were like half of that. Um, you know, we had a firm for instance, I don't know if they were that high, but you know, you look at it like, I don't know, a couple of years ago, 40, 50 billion, 40, 50. So we're talking about, this isn't exactly, you know, supplementing the banking industry. It's, it's replacing in some ways. So do you think a, you know, the valuations really never reflected what the opportunity was B maybe the opportunity is bigger than you let on originally or something in between. I think the opportunity for certain names in certain areas is, is probably mm-hmm. bigger than we think. Like I yeah. honestly think like you mentioned a firm, I think a firm could be the visa and mastercard of buy, not pay later. Right. And what, shout out what a firm does and, and explain why that's the case. That's that's actually interesting. So a firm is like the market leader in the US in buy now, pay later, right? So everybody knows buy now, pay later. Like think of it as instead of pay as you go, mm-hmm. uh, owe as you go, or, right? You know, kind of like credit as you go. Yeah. And Apple's getting into that area now also. So, okay. So if you think, let's go back to this. So if you think about a firm, right? Instead of, um, instead of like, kind of like, buy now, pay later, think of it as like uh, credit as you go. So the traditional credit card system is basically you get a FICO score, you get a credit card or you get several credit cards, and then you have like a huge APR, you owe a lot of interest, a lot of people are like kind of in debt. And what buy now, pay later offers in a firm is like the front runner in the US is basically like the ability to get credit on a product by product basis. And why is that so powerful? Again, there is a certain group, there's a certain demographic, a certain socioeconomic group that is, is you know, in, in, you know, doesn't want to have credit cards. They don't trust credit cards, right? Especially younger people. And they prefer to buy things and finance them. It's basically a cash flow management tool, finance them on a, you know, step-by-step basis. And, you know, a firm has built a brand that basically, um, is a big lure to a lot of people. So when they want to buy sneakers, when they want to buy something on Amazon, they check out using a firm and they finance, say, and pay for, et cetera. So that's essentially what they do. It's really not that complicated of a business, but it's become a big, they're answering a big demand trend and they're there to to um, service it. So we're going to get into every company um, as we go along on this show. But I just want to ask you another broad question. You know, I like tackling these broad ones in the beginning. You have, okay, so first of all, a firm, buy now, pay later. Um, I don't know, does that, does that, um, well, let me ask this quick one and then we get to the bigger one. How does that impact people's credit credit scores? So when I, you know, opened a bank account and went in to deposit a check when I was like 18, the banker, you know, pulled me aside and it's like, you should open a credit card because you want to build credit. Can you build credit in the same way through a company like a firm and never having a credit card open? And so you actually, that's the, that's the interesting point. You don't actually build credit. You basically <laughs> build credit on a firm. Right. But isn't, isn't, oh, but, but like your credit score, it's not going to help you build your credit score. It's not going to help you, but it's not right. going to hurt you if you right. default. If you, and okay. that's interesting. Big, so yeah. again, remember, there's a lot of people, I think what we're dealing with here is like a new generation, right. like Gen Z that prefers, it's like they prefer to share a car than to own a car. They prefer to, it's, it's basically taking credit and turning right. it into as borrow as you go. 
but eventually they're going to want to buy a house and having a high credit score is, is important for that. So I how do, doesn't this hurt them in the long run? It, it, if they, if, if they don't do anything else that helps them get a high FICO score, it's going to be a problem in the long run. I agree right. with you. So there, it has yeah. to be, I, 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 I think, you know, a f- the question that you're asking basically is this completely substituting credit or is this complementary to credit? I think right now they can like live side by side. So you're not doing everything on buy now, pay later. You're doing some things on buy now, pay later and some things on credit. But, you know, I think what eventually you'll see, Alex, is that you'll see regulators come in and there's already like voices in DC. Remember like Elizabeth Warren's of the world, actually Elizabeth Warren, they, they sent a letter to, um, you know, to, to, to try to the CFPB to, to regulate buy now, pay later. So I think eventually, which is a good thing, you will get more regulation around buy now, pay later in a firm. And which also means that you will get a FICO score. Right. Yeah. That is a good thing. And this is kind of the worry that I have when I hear about like the way that all these fintech companies are operating. And and I just want to state for the record that I believe in free choice. People should have, you know, if people make choices, you know, they they you know, they should have those options and I really don't like the whole idea of like gatekeepers saying like these options shouldn't be available because, you know, they could hurt people. Like let people make decisions on their own versus like have like, you know, um you know, obviously like I think the government should help protect people with some regulations, but like, you know, taking options away to me is, you know, is ridiculous. However, I, I think about the way that these companies work and the incentives they, they bring to bring to bear. And I wonder if, if the fintech industry is going to go after the folks that are, that don't have bank accounts or are underserved by the current banking system, how do we make sure? And I, this is like kind of different from, from, you know, the typical conversation, I think, but like about valuations and all that, but how do we make sure that they don't end up getting, you know, uh, attracting customers, you know, from folks that who are underserved from the banking system and exploiting them? For instance, you know, you, we look about look at Robinhood's um, the way that they do business in this this payment for order flow, which it says, okay, you know, the trades are free, but meanwhile, like you have the middlemen that are making making a lot of money off of it. You have, you know, a firm which says buy now, pay later. You know, meanwhile. Folks aren't building credit score. You have Coinbase that says, you know, go ahead and buy all these, you know, shit coins, you know, even with, with, uh, you know, an, a manual to say, this is how you buy a, I think a coin or an index called bullshit, which by the way, happens to be down 99% um, or something like that over the past little well, it's while. It's going to go down to zero. Yeah, it will I go down to zero. Well, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And so I guess the broader question is how, how it, you know, should we be celebrating fintech or should we be skeptical of fintech? I'm sure there must be some good in there, but I'm kind of curious. You you look at these companies all the time. So are they are they um, helping people who are underserved, or are they exploiting them? They help them by exploiting them. Okay, that's, the that's interesting. Can you say more about that? Let me give you an example. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, I love examples because that's just being concrete. Yeah. Let's think mm-hmm. about the Cash App. Mm-hmm. Best example of serving the underserved, right? Why is that? Sort of. Well, because the demographic of the cash app. So in, in America, there's like two different P2P solutions, right? There's Venmo, which is mostly like, you know, pampered millennials, East Coast and West Coast. Mm-hmm. And there's like cash app, which is a lot Southeast, you know, lower income demographics, um, 
you know, kind of like minorities, like it's, it's sort of become a thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's in, it's in rap songs, right? It's become a thing. So uh, again, I'm, I'm not saying they're not exploiting that, but you know, you know, why, why are they doing it? Because they can. So, so how do they make money? Let's go back and think of how they make money, mm. right? Cause that's at the end of the day. So, um, about 45% of the cash app revenue, which is gross profit and revenue is kind of what, you know, synonymous for them, um, is from instant deposit. What is instant deposit? A lot of people don't know that they charge you 175 basis points, which is 1.75% to transfer money instantly to your bank account or you could do it for free if you wait two to three days mm-hmm. now who has the need to transfer money instantly to their bank account you know i'm not being kind of cocky or anything but i don't mm-hmm. i can wait two three days but there are some people out there especially the people that use the cash app who cannot wait two three days they got to pay rent they got to pay you know someone they got to send money home they are the the ninety nine percent, right? Right, and they're taking well. I was going to say taking one percent from the ninety nine percent, but they're Almost taking two. close to two percent from the ninety eight percent. Whatever, yeah. That pun is over because they raise prices. So it's not exploiting, but they're 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 doing it because they can because they're the the end market. Those users really need that service. So what they would argue, and I think there's a lot of like. Um, to, to be on their defense right now. What they would argue is we're providing a service to a certain demographic that in the old days, you mentioned like the Western unions, et cetera. I don't know Western union very well, but in, you know, you, we're providing a service that, that the cost of this money in the cash checked kind of like environment and like the old way, like the 10 years ago was much more expensive. So the opportunity cost is higher. The APR that you pay for money is higher. And they say like, look, we're providing a service. We're democratizing this. I mean, to me, there's a finite kind of time horizon on this instant depositing, but that's just one example of how you can, let's not, not exploit. That's a bad word, but take advantage of a need of a certain demographic um, for, for money because they don't have other options. And that's just one example of maybe helping right. and hurting at the same time. Yeah. I, I, you know, that's interesting. So, so basically in other words, it sounds like what's happening is the old system was so bad that you could still come in and take some margin. Um, but you're still going to be less exploitative than the old system because exactly. the old system was that bad. Exactly. You're better. You're, you're better than the, than the way it used to be done. You're more efficient, right. but you're still probably overcharging for something that should be free. So tech, tech does what tech does, which makes tech so interesting is it applies, it applies values at scale. It, it allows actions to be taken at scale. Um, I, you know, this is kind of old, old hat at this point, but something like a Robin hood or a Coinbase, um, I'm actually kind of curious. Now we have a little bit of vision in retrospect. Um, back in the meme stock days and the game stock and the GameStop days, which we talked a lot about on this podcast, uh, there was an idea that well, um, people on you know retail traders are turning the tables on the old institutions by using new tools 
And, um, you know, there was worry like, okay, maybe we did need some of those speed bumps. Um, but now they, they've gone in and they, they, you know, many people invested a lot in individual stocks and meme stocks. They individual, they invested a lot, not just in Bitcoin, but in various cryptocurrencies that have since, you know, taken a hit. And we're now at a moment where a lot of these stocks are way down. Um, and, and a lot of these, these cryptocurrencies are way down. So, you know, let's, let's take a look, you know, over the past year where there was initially this like, oh, these are empowering tools, but now a lot of people are paying for the party, right? So um, ultimately, do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing that, that these tools had democratized so much access to investing? I would bifurcate, I think, between those two names that you mentioned, I think Robinhood is a good thing and Coinbase is a bad thing. Okay. Why is that? Well, let's talk about the, the, the good thing first. Like why, why do I think Robinhood is, is created value? Because they basically came to a new demographic, a new age group, right? Teenagers, younger people, and, and basically said, Hey, we're going to create investing is really complicated. Investing is really, you know, kind of opaque and, and sort of old school. Let's come in with innovation, with an amazing interface and, you know, give you free trading, right? And and basically become your um, you know, a funnel to be to to have you as the uh sort of as a you buy, you know, the, the customer acquisition is, you know, the, the the value proposition is come in when you're very young and then just basically grow with you over time. What did they do that's really good? They lowered trading fees to zero across the entire industry, single handedly. Schwab, TD, they all had to follow suit and basically cut fees because of Robinhood. So what did they do? They helped democratize. I kind of, I I, I sort of hate that term because that's, you know, everyone's trying to democratize something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I do. Uh, Yeah. yeah, So, so it's sort of like, it's almost like a cliche, but think about Robinhood did. The effect of Robinhood was to lower or bring trading fees literally to zero. Now there's a debate on, PFOF, et cetera. We can talk about that too, but like they, they single-handedly, you know, disrupted the industry. So I think they did more good than bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Coinbase, on the other hand, basically. Before we go to Coinbase, Robinhood also sort of gamified this, this, uh, the the day trading thing. You even mentioned recently, I think this was probably you, that, um, it's the most engaged audience, six to seven yes. transactions per week. We know that right. like 90% of day traders lose. So I get bringing down the fee, but like, I don't want to say the speed bump was good because let people make their own decisions. But when you build this addict- addictive product that, you know, people want to trade like crazy and we, you know, it's all good when everything goes up, but now everything has come down. Um, is it is it just uh you know an easy vehicle for people to learn hard lessons or how, where do you sort of stand on on that front mm. i'd rather they learn the hard lesson with small amounts mm-hmm. than make even more irrational decisions down the road like if anyone is sort of you know put their life savings into amc sorry and lost it all, you know, or, or, mm-hmm. or one of these meme stocks, I think that, um, it's, it's, it, the question is like how many of them have basically lost. I think, look, there's a moral, deeper moral 
decision to everything and especially when it comes to money and investing and then the the balance is to your point have they done more good or bad mm-hmm. to humanity or to the economy i think i kind of if i had to do a verdict i think they would they've done more good but yeah it's an open debate i agree like the meme stock era is is a <laughs> we can finally a, look a muta- back at it Wait, yeah, it's a mutation it's right it's a mutation of so you could say they gamified it but really what gamified it was the people that were using it right it's kind of it's almost like the oh that's know, well it's designed that way though it's it's designed yeah there's a casino kind of element right. to this but you know it's it you, know, you you know like you know you it's it's not just them that's what i'm saying like yeah. it's it's everyone they probably took it to the umpteenth degree but they've also captured the hearts and minds of a lot of people and and made and brought them to be engaged i think there has been certain mutations and the the, the reddit era and all that stuff again covid i don't want to blame covid it's kind of old but you know covid put all these trends on steroids but as you know right. covid is around her. always think about perspective 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 like mm-hmm. we are at the sunset of covid we could be sitting here in a year doing the same podcast and we wouldn't, and, and it would be like 1999. We wouldn't be talking about like, it just a, it's a one time in history bump yeah, that just got on steroids. I wouldn't extrapolate that to be right. a long-term the world. Uh, and thing. So that's by the way, Robin. I, yeah. I wish I had Robin Hood when I was younger because I would have learned those hard lessons and then realized how futile day trading is for most people who don't do it professionally. And even then, and probably just said, okay, I'll go, go S&P 500 and invest a lot and see that return flourish. But instead, I had no, no on-ramp and, and it was confusing and I started investing too late. Yeah, and, and I agree. And look at like look right. in, every, in every cycle. Um, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember in like 2001, like I remember like a, a cab driver in New York City who was trading stock on his <laughs> stock on his like um, Palm Blackberry? Pilot. Palm Pilot. Oh like, wow! They did. It wasn't invented yet. Yeah. On the Palm Palm Pilot. Yeah. And he was like, "I'm making so much money. I'm making so much money." And then you know that's the end. Yeah. So it's sort of like you know when when and and maybe there is a sense of it on the meme stock era, so that you know that there's no you know when when investments become irrational. And right. I think there's a element of of it on the robin hood users and and that's you know I, i'm not a big fan of it but it's maybe the necessary evil that comes with the you know opening up investments and educating it to your point mm-hmm. to a younger generation like yeah you know what i mean can, so, can we i oh, was sorry um why don't you finish that thought and then i want to kick to a no, break i'm done with it. that thought oh, okay. this wasn't like yeah Good. let's take a break all right, great. So let's kick to a break now, and then we'll be back here with Dan Dolev right after this to get to why he thinks Coinbase is bad. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. 
On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Dan Dolev, the Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Mizuho. Uh, you can watch a lot of his stuff on CNBC. Just go, go to YouTube now. Type in Dan Dolev. You'll see some, uh, some interesting clips through the years. Um, you know, and, and Dan has really had a front row seat to this wild swing that fintech stocks have taken. So we'll get to that um, as soon as we go through the Coinbase stuff. Um, but let's get to Coinbase. You have some reservations about Coinbase. It's a fascinating company um, for many reasons. Uh, a, it's the leader in, you know, basically crypto. It's the leading crypto trading app and holding app um, in the world. It's also uh, very public in terms of its political point of views, no politics in the office, which it made uh, a big thing. I think their CEO, Brian Armstrong, is quite an interesting character. He doesn't care for journalists very much. Um, they're very much in telling their own story, just like kind of a fascinating, they're, they're an interesting product and also an interesting political uh, uh, vehicle. But anyway, let's talk about the company itself, what it does and why you're kind of uh, skeptical about it. Yeah, I'm very bearish on Coinbase and things. I, I don't know if having a front row seat in fintech was that much fun over the last year, but um, oh yeah, you're right well, about the, the. It makes for a fun podcast episode, that's for sure. It, it definitely, <laughs> if, if it gets, if it if it gets, you know, people to enjoy our podcast, I'm, I'm all about yeah. it. So you thanks. Know, I, I just don't want to. I don't, I don't want to have that roller coaster again next <laughs> yeah, year. Hopefully, I believe it, it gets a little quieter. But right. look, I mean, what is the? What are we like? What is the? What is the? the whole promise of, of, of crypto, if you're bullish on crypto, right? The promise of crypto or, or what crypto should generate or what should help is lower the cost of transactions between people between. So it's basically the, the promise is kind of like, if I want to send you money in El Salvador, why do I need to go through like a remitly or one of these guys? If you're like, you know, a foreign worker, you know, working out of the Philippines and sending money back to your family. Um, one of the use cases of crypto is the ability to um, basically transact fiat to crypto, crypto to fiat, lowering the cost of acceptance, right? So if you think about the cost of acceptance, when I when you go to a merchant, it's like 3%, 4%, 5% sometimes with buy now, pay later. So if you can lower the cost of acceptance and do it on a, cross-border basis, then you've really created value with crypto. You've really democratized. What is Coinbase doing? What Coinbase is doing is it's basically like a, it's like a centralized exchange for a decentralized, you know, I would say asset class, if you want to call right. that. 
S class. I don't really think you should call it S class, but it's so there's a juxtaposition even in the term of what they do, right? That crypto, if you believe in crypto, you should believe in decentralized crypto and in in this. So what what they're doing is basically they created a, I mean, casino is a hard word, is is a tough word, but they basically created like a, you know, it's kind of like a a gambling, like is, is this coin going to be better than that? And then the whole thing is, is they're not productive assets. So, you know, those alternative coins, and I would even say Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're just more of the same. So they're, but, but basically Coinbase does is they, they are bound to have diminishing, I mean, as a stock, I don't like it, right? They're bound, they've done very well for themselves, but they're, they, they, these, the trading fees are on, on these things are going to close to zero. And there's no use case to all these alternative coins. So basically they're encouraging people to make, you know, um, you know, to make, bets on on these coins and i think eventually that's going to end in tears it already is ending in tears so i don't oh yeah it's a, yeah people are i think from a moral perspective stage yeah yeah i think from a moral perspective and also from a stock picking perspective it's bad news right yeah they're they are an interesting company we will have some more coinbase questions to come so there's coinbase and there's also ftx and there's this very colorful character sam bankman freed what's the difference between Coinbase and FTX, and why does FTX and and Sam Bankman Fried? I mean, there he is like considering an acquisition of Robinhood, although he said he's not. Um, and he's yeah, and trying I, to work on some other stuff. Why is he and his his exchange, you know, held in much higher regard at this point? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know FTX per se. Yeah, that well, it's a very good right. question. I don't know. They're bigger in Europe than in the US. I think yeah. that. Um, I. I Talking about the acquisition, actually, it's like, you know, there has been news yesterday on 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 Robinhood. I, I actually think that if they did it, it would be like peanut butter and jelly because what what does FTX have? They have, you know, your you know non US presence and they have a better balance sheet than than most other guys. And what does Robinhood have? And they have much less people than Coinbase. I think Coinbase has like eleven hundred and F, which just announced an eighteen eighteen percent layoff. FTX has, I don't know, in the 300s, from my understanding. Correct. So they don't employ as many people. They they run it in a much smarter way. Yeah. And I think they run it in a, you know, I don't think that, again, I don't know them very well. They're private. But I know, I mean, from what I understand is it's, um, at least they don't tell a story, a false story about this the crypto economy. They call it like it is. But if you think about the Robinhood, just a word on the Robinhood FTX thing, I think it's really interesting kind of as a side note because that peanut butter and jelly, right? FTX has the, you know, the technology and the, the non-US users and Robinhood has this amazing brand and and can expand beyond. And, and even they understand that they need mm-hmm. to expand beyond crypto. That's why mm-hmm. they're going to work. But that's a different yeah. thing. So Coinbase is so controversial because you really think that um, no one really thinks that take rates are going to stay at one and change. They're going down. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I'm, I, I don't know why FTX is held in a higher regard. It's a very good question. It's a mystery to me too. I don't know the answer and I don't know it very well because it's private. Now um, we're going to get to Coinbase's business in a second, but since we've been doing all the societal fun issues in the beginning of this month, there was a petition uh, where Coinbase, I think Coinbase employees uh, wanted to remove their executives. Apparently, uh, they had taken you know money, uh, basically taken money off the table earlier, and 
Um, there was this whole, I mean, it's very strange. We also saw um, SpaceX employees write to Elon Musk to tell him to stop tweeting. He fired them right away. And now we have this, you know, Coinbase rebellion, not a political one, but actually just saying that um, here it is from the Wall Street Journal. Um, it was a petition to remove several top executives, including Chief Operating Officer Emil Choi, Chief Product Officer Saroji Charaji, and Chief People Officer LJ, Bro- LJ Brock. Um, and it appeared on Mirror and in complaint, it complained that the company's recent perform- about the company's recent performance and demanded that the executives be removed. Hmm. I think Brian Armstrong said that this is really dumb on many levels. <laughs> If you want to, this is so interesting. If you want to do a vote of no confidence, you should do it on me and not blame the execs. There is probably lots we can be doing better, but if you're at a place where you want to leak stuff externally, then it's time for you to go. You're hurting yourself and those, those around you. I mean, holy crap. For a company that outlaws, you know, discussion of political issues, of political issues, they sure have a lot of drama. Um, what, what do you, yeah, I guess if this is new to you, I'm just kind of curious. What's going on with the leadership there? I mean, and, and what, what causes employee base to, to revolt in this way? I think that they, you know, they did it. If you go back to their IPO process, right? It was a direct listing. So usually when companies go public, they go public to raise money. They didn't go public because they were at the height of the COVID, you know, mm-hmm. crypto mania mm-hmm. in June of last year, right? Exactly a year ago. The, they went public to a liquidity. It was a liquidity event to enrich themselves. And they mm-hmm. sold a lot of shares and it's been very public how, you know, dimensions that have been bought, et cetera. Right. So I, I feel like when, you know, when, when, potentially on the one hand management is telling a certain story but then on the other hand they're you know selling shares and it's it's so it feels like they're they're, i mean again i'm trying to think about what would cause that internally and it's it you know it it definitely sounds like there is um there's a dissonance between Mm -hmm. you know that what you know what they're saying and then some of the behavior and then the second thing is it maybe they realize that hey our 85, 90% of our revenues are at risk of going to zero if right. take rates go down to a few basis points. And all the other projects that we've done aren't taking off. Like NFTs not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. All these other staking and stuff revenues are kind of correlated with crypto. Right. And not it to doesn't mention, look good. Yeah, and they only make money when people trade, from what I understand. Oh yeah, and yeah, they don't make people, they make money on volatility, right? And people they make have money on volatility trading. I mean, they've been selling, but um, oh, this is actually a really interesting point. Can I mention something interesting? Yeah, so we've of course. done a survey, Alex. We've done a survey recently that shows you this is again evidence based work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, the average cost basis for the average crypto or Bitcoin. Holder on Coinbase is twenty one thousand dollars, which means that the average Bitcoin investor on Coinbase on the Coinbase platform is now underwater. What is wait? Say, what does the cost basis mean, and why does it mean that it means underwater? that the average person? So mm-hmm. we did a survey again. It's not oh a the average survey. oh the average cost at which they bought their Bitcoin is twenty one thousand dollars. Is that yes. right? And yes. so now Bitcoin is much is lower than that. Twenty point something. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're twenty thousand. 
So the average right. Coinbase user is down. What are the implications of that? That's fascinating. That's exactly the point. That's exactly the yeah. point. So now we're dealing with a new era. Uh-huh. And this is interesting. This is the, I, I almost wanted to hire a casino psychologist <laughs> to analyze it. Right. That would be a great, because now mm-hmm. we're t- dealing with the realm of like psychiatry and psychology, right? right? So now basically this is the first time in history, really, mm-hmm. that the average investor in crypto called Bitcoin as sort of the beacon of crypto mm. has lost money. Yeah. Now they have to make a decision, fight or flight. Buy and? more. So we asked people, and this is huh. really interesting. Again, take that with a grain of salt, but we've asked those same people um, at what point, at what level are you going to sell your or give up? Mm-hmm. It turns out that 50% of the people said this was, Actually, like, I wonder what it would say today, but this was about a month and a half ago when Bitcoin was still at 30,000. Mm-hmm. 50% of the people, they said, I'm never selling. Mm-hmm. Again, at 30,000, life was good. They were mm-hmm. up 50% on their Bitcoin. At 20,000, right. life is bad. They're down. And they're not losing a lot of money. They're better than two weeks ago when it was at 17, but mm-hmm. they're, they're down. And the other 50%, it sounds like the tipping point, we call that research the tipping point, the Bitcoin tipping point, is about nine or 10,000. So at that point, people would just run for the exit. Because that means it goes to zero? It means there's a run on the banks. That means Damn. that basically you've given up. But again, this is all mm-hmm. like a, again, it's not a, what about all the asterisks in the, ex, you know, the, the, this yeah. is a non-scientific survey. But we did survey like two to 300 people-ish. It's a pretty good survey. And by the way, we did that same, same survey twice with a span of, with a span of like six to eight months. And that $21,000 kind of yardstick keeps mm-hmm. showing up as sort of that, you know, consistently. So there is something about that $21,000 that's, there's a reason why Bitcoin's like hovering up and down that $21,000. It's an, it's an really not just because it's a blackjack, but there's, yeah, it, you know, it's so I think there's, something very interesting going on right now. There's a real debate in people's heads. Like, am I fighting it or am I flighting? It's a fight or flight at this point. And I don't know. And and I'm not, and I'm not a casino analyst. So I don't know. I just know one thing. Most casinos, you know, because the house always wins in the casinos and people still come back. So the house is Coinbase (laughs) right now, Mm -hmm. but exactly. But, but exactly. The house is Coinbase, right? They, um, but, the casino makes less money when 10 casinos open up on the same strip. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening with Coinbase. Back in the day, they were the only one. Right. And now Binance is lowering fees. You know, FTX is getting more aggressive. So, you know, Robinhood is already offering it for free. So e- even if this category remains, it's going to come at a much lower take rate. You're going to see the exact same mechanism that you saw with, with equities. Yeah. Whereas trading fees goes to zero. I would argue that because this is, these are non-productive assets, 99% of them are going to go to zero, if not. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the outlook for, I make a big distinction between blockchain right. and crypto. Yeah. Different thing. They right. mix together, but I just, I make a distinction between, I don't own any crypto. I have no intention of owning any crypto. Actually, I'm lying. I own $10 of Bitcoin. I, now it's five. 
because I was checking <laughs> pricing on the on the on the on yeah. the cash app to see when we were initiating. I was like, how much does it cost me to buy five dollars, ten dollars, and then at oh, interesting. Twenty, I stopped. Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah. And this is uh, from that journal story that was actually in uh, in June about the employees writing to Coinbase. Interesting, uh, yeah. And, and so, I saw something so, where the CEO said actually, when if you don't like it, you should quit. Right, and that's there was again, something else. Well, he said that multiple times. But let's just read the numbers. So uh, this is this was in June. Coinbase shares are down seventy seven percent so far this year, and about eighty three percent off their November record high of three fifty seven. On Friday, shares fell 7.9% to 58.71. And since then, uh, shares have fallen even further because Coinbase is now at 51. Uh, that is, I mean, look, we know the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 are down, um, but fintech overall is just getting slaughtered. Why is the market taking, uh, you know, taking all this out on fintech? What's going on? I mean, you watch these stocks all, all the time. It, again, I think part of it, when you think about fintech it's separate you know software is software right it's there's a SaaS, and you know it's sort of like it's it's much more i'd say unanimous when when you think about fintech it's different verticals like you know the 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 verdict for buy now pay later should not be the same verdict as crypto trading right but people tend to group them Group they group them together. So okay. now we're in this market dislocation. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. gonna that's gonna settle itself out. Like you're gonna right. see that you're gonna see PayPal kind of going. You know, PayPal mm-hmm. has nothing to do with crypto. I mean, they'd like to right. tell people, or at least last year they were talking about it, but they really don't have anything to do with crypto. So how difficult so, does that make your job? Because you're like trying to put different. price targets on these on yeah. these companies. So I mean, like here's one: you had Robinhood at a sixty eight dollar uh, price target last year and it and went up to 70 call. and now now it's at nine so yeah you know cool do you, do you a bad call yeah do you do you search your name on twitter ever because <laughs> it's it is a lot of people who are like um dan's got an answer for these calls so like how did yeah tell me a little bit about oh, really? how you no man how you, thank god i'm oh, not on twitter don't do it Maybe don't do it, it. no no don't look don't look <laughs> <laughs> so but but i'm curious like what you what you think about it but um, send me the link i'd like to see yeah okay i'll send I, it i to don't you. know yeah send me the link i i mean i would lose I'll, I'll be honest if i was in my shoes trying to you know this market has just you know obviously shot up you know and then plunged down and i would lose my mind trying to like you know obviously someone like you reads the earnings reports thinks about the market mm-hmm. you know thinks about the company and the market conditions and then says bam like this should be 68. But like, again, I lose my mind trying to yeah. trying to figure out what's going on in this market when um, we're seeing such volatility. Yeah. I mean, if you think about sort of the way it should be done, and I'm not saying that this is the way people do this, but if you really kind of sit down, like let's, let's call it the Warren Buffett way. Uh, not sort of, not maybe that's too, too much, right? It's, uh, but the way it should be done when looking at these fintechs, like the first thing you need to figure out is the sustainability of the revenue stream. So we have to like figure out the debate on is this revenue stream protectable, right? Like we talked about the cash app and instant deposits. I mean, I would want to think that it's sustainable, but I, 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 I can, I have concerns, right? Cause there's, you know, this seems to be too good to be true, maybe, right? So how sustainable? And then, on, and then you have to think about what is the terminal margin of 
these businesses. And 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 then once you do that, like that's how hard our job is. Once you figure out this one and then that one, then you have to figure out what multiple you put on that. Right. And the multiple is the hardest thing to figure out. And I always liken it to measuring the distance in space. You're like, oh, well, the sun is X, Y, Z miles from the moon, but uh, it's closer than the distance to Mars. And like, so it's yeah. completely, you live in a world that has like, it's like basically like floating around in space, like the people at the, at the International Play State, you know, the International Space Station, right? They're just mm. like floating around and they're like, you know, the water comes from above and it comes from below. There is no, there is sometimes there, you know, nothing justifies what happened last year. And that's when we put these price targets because the multiples were very high and the correction is too deep. The answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Like last year, it's like, you know, real estate in midtown Manhattan. There's some years where the market's hot and everyone pays up for that. And there's some years where the market's not hot and people don't pay as much for it. So our multiples vary with marking to market because there's no other way we could do it. We're right. I can't, I can't control the market. The market is what it is, but I can Mm -hmm. control the sustainability of the revenue stream, which I still think is very strong for say Robinhood and the terminal margins, which I think is very strong. So it's really honestly Mm -hmm. like our numbers have come down Mm -hmm. uh, because they've guided down, but what's come down more than the numbers is the multiple. If you know what I mean? Yeah. And it is interesting, like when you adjust your price target, the market really listens to you, Dan. I mean, you see, you see these stocks move. It's pretty wild. Okay. Well, I did not know it, but I, yeah. was, <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, look, I, I think it was a bad call on Robinhood. And I still think wholeheartedly, honestly, yeah, it's the most innovative name in payments alongside Square. And honestly, they have, you know, two feet on the ground, so to say, more than mm-hmm. Square. I feel like Square Square lives in like a Bitcoin bubble right now. And I think Vlad and Bijou, or whatever, I can't pronounce his last name. Uh, the, the co-founders, they really know what I they're doing. Heard. I really think yeah. that they are, you know, very, very focused. And it just sort of happened to be in a... I mean, when you go public at the height of an all-time cycle, like it's 1999, everything looks like a tough call. Yeah. It's hard. That's what I'm saying. Perspective, long term. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see any um, calm waters on the horizon or are we going to be in the choppy stuff for a while? Once you get clarity, I do see calm waters and not because I'm staring at the (laughs) back bay here in Boston at the airport. Yeah. Um, and it's very calm outside. Um, the here, let me show you. <laughs> Looks nice. So it's beautiful. Um, I do. Once we get clarity yeah. on the depth of the recession and the duration of the recession. You so you're already see- calling it a recession. I mean, I'm not a macroeconomist, but right. I think that's what the Fed is trying to throw us into. Yes. To lower, I mean, because the Fed has a very tough job right now. They relate to raise interest rates. And now they're basically fighting the inflation by raising interest rates. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, sorry. 
But yeah. So, but I'm, I'm saying like, I'm not a macro, but it, I would say, yes, I think a recession is coming. If I had to kind of think about like, yeah, you know, I, I think it's probably, it's probably, I think that's what the Fed is like getting us into. Right. And I agree that that's what they need to do to stop inflation. There's nothing worse than inflation. Mm-hmm. Inflation is destructive. You know, go back to like Germany in the 1920s it's, or yeah. US in the 1970s. It's a disaster. You don't want that. So once we get that clarity, everything will calm down. And then you'll, people will start basically saying, okay, you know, it might not be the mania that we've seen in 2021, but again, it'll be somewhere in the middle. I actually think the second half at some point will have a nice rebound and the volatility should abate as we get further out of COVID. Because remember, there was so much dislocation and everything we just talked about in the podcast. Yeah. It needs to be put behind us. It was a singularity in history that we won't see for another hundred years. Right. And I'll just leave with this thought. I have a source in shipping who told me back in the day, uh, the containers were 2000. They had got to bring a container in from China. They used to be 2000. They had gone up to 15 or 20,000. And he told me, Alex, inflation is coming and inflation came. And now those 20,000 containers are now 8,000. So they're on the way down. So we could see supply chain easing and we could see the Fed. Sorry. I'll let you have the last word. Can I give you my can I give you my insight? Yes, please. One of my I one of my kids' friends' dad, mm-hmm. he's a genius. Mm. He imports canned food from China. A year and a half ago, he told me, not a year and a half ago, a year ago, he was like, Dan, inflation's coming. Same thing, because he yeah. more persists. I saw him at like the baseball game. He's just like his name is Dave. He's like really, you know, really smart. I saw him and he goes like, Dan, for the first time, I'm getting deals. There it's, we are. Yeah. So this is so the beginning. Of, yeah. He called inflation and now he's calling. Why do you need Gary Gensler and Jay Powell yeah. to get Dave on, <laughs> Just, on, on CNBC? Exactly. Just got to speak to your shipping bros. I mean, really, it's sort of been, been the core of this whole thing is the supply chain. And I think that's why you're going to see the market. So yeah. you're already seeing like expectations for interest rates coming down in 2020, late 2023, 2024. And then- you will see some calm waters uh, coming and then you'll see kind of quality rising, right? So there'll be a, I, I still believe Robinhood is an amazing asset. And I think, and I think Coinbase is, 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 is not good. <laughs> yeah. Dan Dolev, thank you so much for joining. What a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on. Anytime. My pleasure. Okay. That'll do it for us here on big technology podcast. You can check out, uh, Basically, go to tune in on CNBC any any given day where there's fintech news and you'll see Dan there. So I encourage you to do that. That's where we're going to wrap at this point. So appreciate Dan coming on. Appreciate uh, you listening. We gave Nate a shout out at the beginning. Nate, you're a hero. Thank you, Nate Gwatney, for editing uh, the show, mastering the audio. Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. What a blast it's been. And thanks to all of you, the listeners, for coming here. Week in, week out. We will be back next Wednesday with another episode with a tech insider or an outside agitator. Of course, please go to my LinkedIn page. We'll talk about it. We have a newsletter that's dedicated to the podcast there. So I'd like to see you there. Um, and, and that'll do it for us here. So we will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. Mm-hmm.